Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from AntiWar.com, and this is Anti-War News for Monday, August 1st, 2022. I hope everybody had a good weekend. We got a lot of stuff to catch you up on today. The first story at the top of the page is that Nancy Pelosi has started her tour of Asia. She departed for the Asia-Pacific, and her office announced on Sunday that she will be leading a congressional delegation to Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan. But they did not say whether or not they would be stopping in Taiwan, which, as we know, if Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan, she's the Speaker of the House, technically the third in line to take over the presidency. She's a very high-level official in the U.S. government. It will be a major provocation towards China, and China is warning of a forceful response. So we know... Also, that the Biden administration fears that if she goes to Taiwan, it could spark a cross-strait crisis. And that they're, but they're also not stopping her from going. They say it's her decision. Um, so this delegation that she has gone on, it includes five other uh, members of the House. They're all Democrats, including Gregory Meeks. He's the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, and so far, Pelosi has declined to comment at all on whether or not she's going to go to Taiwan. When she's been asked by reporters, she's citing security reasons. We saw some other members of Congress confirm that she invited them to go to Taiwan. So she seems, before she left, she seemed like she's pretty set on going to Taiwan. Now, the question is, is, is if after all this media drama, like I said, we've seen multiple reports in the New York Times and Washington Post that the U.S., that the Biden administration, they're saying they think it's a bad idea and that it would be just a purposeful provocation. Um, and we've seen that the U.S. military thinks it's a bad idea and they're preparing for the trip, sending more forces to the region. We've seen the aircraft carrier Ronald Reagan is sailing around the South China Sea. So tensions are really high over this. Um, Chinese officials have repeatedly warned that Taiwan is a red line for them uh, and their warning of strong countermeasures if Pelosi goes. Now, uh, Hugh Shijin, he is the former editor of China's Global Times, and uh, he wrote on Twitter that if U.S. fighter jets escorted Pelosi's plane to Taiwan, that China would view it as an invasion and would have the right to, quote, forcibly dispel Pelosi's plane and the U.S. fighter jets, including firing warning shots, and making tactical movement of obstruction, end quote. And then he said if that doesn't work, then they have the right to shoot them down. So now this was taken by many Western media outlets. You know, we saw headlines like this in the Daily Mail. China threatens to shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane. Now, we haven't seen Chinese officials actually say that. We haven't seen any uh, official statements from the Chinese government saying anything like that. Again, he's the former editor of this uh Chinese state media outlet. It's their English language media outlet. And he's very, uh, you know, he says stuff like this. This isn't really a surprise coming from him, but it does show how serious, how much of a provocation it is to China that he would say something like that. Um, but still, I wouldn't expect them to shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane. Um, but we're going to see some sort of big reaction. They could, they could, hold missile tests very close to Taiwan or fly planes, maybe even in their airspace, which they, they haven't done. Um, so we'll see. And I mean, if Pelosi goes, it's just completely reckless provocation. There's no other reason to do it.
Um, so, I mean, I guess we're just going to find out either we're just going to see that she's there, that her plane went there, or or she's going to wrap up the trip and come back to the U.S. That's how we're going to learn whether or not she's going to go. They're not going to make any comments on it. Unless, who knows, maybe some aid, some congressional aides will leak something to the media this week. But it's something to keep an eye on, and it's just just goes to show how uh, reckless they could be. And this is another one about the tensions with China over Taiwan. Uh, on Saturday, China conducted live-fire military exercises in the Taiwan Strait. Um, Chinese authorities said the live-fire drills were carried out off the waters of Pingtan Island in the Fujian province, and that is about 75 miles from the coast of Taiwan and about 115 miles from the capital of Taiwan, which is Taipei. And according to the South China Morning Post, China announced that it would be holding these drills on Thursday ahead of a phone call between Chinese President Xi Jinping and President Biden. They spoke for two hours the other day, and she warned Biden that the U.S. shouldn't play with fire on the Taiwan issue. Um, so congressional delegations to Taiwan have been been more common in recent years as Washington is increasing its ties with Taipei as part of its strategy against Beijing. In early July, we saw Senator Rick Scott, a Republican from Florida, visit the island, and China responded by flying warplanes over the median line that separates the Taiwan Strait. It's a line that goes down the middle of the strait that China generally uh, doesn't cross with uh, warplanes or warships. Okay, so that's just an example of the high tensions. And, you know, we really have to keep them, like, more people need to understand that if there's a big escalation over Taiwan, if China does something, uh, it's be it's because it was provoked by the U.S. It's because it was provoked by Pelosi going there, U.S. meddling in, in the in the issue. Um Okay, so the next one here, um, a drone attack hit the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Crimea on Sunday, causing an explosion that wounded six people and making the city of Sevastopol cancel its Russian Navy Day celebration. So I, I highlighted this because we've seen Ukrainian officials say that they're going to start attacking targets in Crimea, and they said that they would use it, do it with Western arms, but it doesn't look like this was a drone that the U.S. The U.S. has been giving Ukraine these kamikaze drones, known as switchblade drones or Phoenix Ghost drones, which they just designed for Ukraine. It's like a brand new type of drone, but um, the reports, the Russian and Crimean officials described it as a makeshift drone that had that was carrying a low-powered explosive, so that kind of signals it was a drone anybody could buy and they strapped some explosives to it um and they're not sure where the attack came from crimean officials said that they're not they don't know at this point where the attack was launched from um it could have been launched from inside crimea um but we see we saw a ukrainian an advisor to ukrainian president vladimir zelensky said that the drone attack shows that Russia has a weak air defense system in Crimea. Oh, I should say that Ukraine hasn't taken credit for this drone attack at this point. And we've seen this with, um, there's been a lot of attacks, several attacks inside Russian territory since Russia invaded Ukraine. And, and Ukrainian officials usually don't take credit for those attacks. They kind of hint that they're responsible, I guess, out of kind of fear of 
that those attacks could provoke a bigger response from Russia. Um, but we did see a an advisor to Zelensky um, kind of mock the attack. He said on Telegram, quote, did the occupiers admit the helplessness of their air defense system or their helplessness in front of the Crimean partisans? End quote. And then he suggested this advisor to Zelensky that this means that they would be able to take out the Crimean bridge, which connects the peninsula of Crimea to Russia, to the mainland of Russia. It's a pretty massive bridge that Russia built after it took Crimea in 2014. So they're talking about, I guess, bombing this bridge now. Um, but yeah, it's just something to keep an eye on because this is an example. We've seen, like I said, Ukrainian officials say they're going to attack Crimea. And the, the HIMARS, the uh, mobile rocket systems that the U.S. recently started giving Ukraine, um, when they gave them those HIMARS, it was under the condition, don't use them to attack Russian territory. But it doesn't appear to apply to Crimea, which because the U.S. and Ukraine don't recognize Crimea as Russian territory. And when I asked the State Department if the ban on HIMARS being used in, on Russian territory applies to Crimea, they responded to me by saying Crimea is Ukraine. So that signals that the U.S. would let Ukraine use these HIMARS to attack Crimea, which could lead to a major escalation in the war, as these Western arms have. Uh, so the next one here, it was Russia's Navy Day on Sunday, and Russian President Vladimir Putin, he signed a new naval doctrine for Russia that names the U.S. as Moscow's main rival on the seas. Uh, so the 55-page doctrine says that the major threat facing Russia on the world's oceans is, quote, the U.S. strategic course towards dominance in the world ocean and its global influence on international processes, including those related to the use of transportation lanes and energy resources of the world ocean, end quote. Uh, according to Russia's TASS news agency, the doctrine also identifies the, the expansion of NATO's military infrastructure up to Russia's borders and the alliance's drills in waters near Russia as major security threats. So in recent years, we saw the U.S. and NATO step up their naval activity in the Black Sea. We really saw this when Biden came in. In 2021, U.S. warships more than doubled their presence in the Black Sea compared to the year before. Uh, but since Russia invaded Ukraine, that activity has really dropped. And we just saw the U.S., they canceled, uh, I believe they were called the Sea Breeze exercises that were going to be held in the Black Sea. They had to, they canceled them um, because of the war in Ukraine. And we saw these tensions between NATO and Russia in the Black Sea. They came to a head back in June 2021 when the British, they sailed a warship about 12 nautical miles off the coast of Crimea. Um, which Russia viewed as a major provocation, and they said that they fired warning shots in response at the warship. It was the HMS Defender. Um, so that was just one example of a real big NATO provocation towards Russia that we saw um, in the months and years leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, Putin's new doctrine also calls for Russia to expand its military presence in the Arctic and that's an area I linked to a, something I wrote last year about a new Navy strategy from the U.S. Navy that calls to confront Russia and China in the Arctic. Just about every military service, the Navy, the Army, I know that both of them released these strategies for the Arctic. 
because they view that as a potential battlefield in a future war with Russia or China. Um, and this, I just thought this was interesting because, you know, Russia is an Arctic state. They have a huge coastline of about 15,000 miles on the Arctic Sea or on waters above the Arctic Circle. And, um, you know, the U.S. kind of, they challenge some of their claims to uh, areas in the Barents Sea up in the Arctic Circle. Um, so we might see, you know, the U.S. has its eye on expanding into the Arctic. Um, and that's just an area to really keep an eye on um, as things move forward. Uh, this next one here, this is from Connor Freeman. Uh, the Blinken Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov spoke on Friday for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. They spoke for the first time since February 15th. Um, but it, they did not discuss any potential ceasefires in Ukraine, which Blinken made clear before the call that that wasn't going to happen, that this was going to be focused on a prisoner swap proposal that the U.S. Um, has put forward, which is uh, they're offering this guy, Victor Bout, who is a Russian arms dealer that's facing a 25-year sentence in the U.S., and they're offering to trade him for Brittany Griner, WNBA star, who was uh, arrested in Russia for having vape cartridges that had cannabis in them. She's on trial right now. And also Paul Welland, who is a former U.S. Marine, who is who was convicted in Russia of espionage, and he's serving a 16-year sentence. So the U.S. has offered bout for these two. Um, it's in its early stages, I think, this this deal. So they also discussed the grain deal that Russia signed with Turkey, Ukraine, and the UN, and the deal. The idea of it is to get Ukraine's grain moving out of its Black Sea ports so they can export their grain. And, you know, the U.S. had nothing to do with brokering this deal because they haven't really given diplomacy a shot at all since this war started in, in any area. Uh, except for this is the first time again that they've spoken and it's really not focused on the war. So, but Blinken said that they're going to press, you know, Russia to uphold its end of this deal. Under this deal, Ukraine will escort ships carrying grain out of their Black Sea ports, which are heavily mined. Um, and Russia will agree not to attack grain infrastructure and, and the areas where the ships are moving as they're, as they're leaving the ports. So this next one, there's a lot in the news today about Kosovo and Serbia. Uh, tensions kind of rose there after Kosovo was planning to implement new rules that would ban Serbian license plates and other identification documents. Um, so there's a lot of Serbs in northern Kosovo that don't recognize, uh, that use Serbian license plates and use Serbian identity identification like passports and stuff. Um, but Kosovo's tried to implement this before, uh, but it caused a lot of unrest. A lot of the Serbs in the north um, that don't recognize Kosovo as, as a country were protesting it, and they set up uh, roadblocks, and it seems like things got pretty pretty uh, tense. There was air raid sirens in a, in a town in the north there that's mostly uh, inhabited by Serbs. 
So to in a bid to ease the tensions, Kosovo desi- decided to delay implementing these restrictions. They just kicked it back to September 1st, which isn't that far from now. Um, the restrictions were set to be enacted. They would have had a 60-day transition period for Serbs to obtain Kosovo license plates. Um, but they were also going to enact a new rule requiring Serbs to get an extra document to enter Kosovo from Serbia. Um, but what was interesting is that according to RT, the U S ambassador in Kosovo, he gave the recommendation to Kosovo authorities to delay the restrictions. Um, so it was after consultations with EU and U S ambassadors that they made that decision. So while things were tense, I saw this on Twitter, the NATO mission in Kosovo known as Kosovo force or K4. Uh, they put out a press release saying that they're prepared to intervene uh, if things get out of hand there in North Kosovo. Um, they described the situation as tense and they said, quote, K4 is prepared to intervene if stability is jeopardized in the north of Kosovo. End quote. So NATO has had a presence in Kosovo since the military alliance launched a 78-day bombing campaign in what was Yugoslavia in 1999. So, you know, this is just an example of you, you, you always hear the term forever wars, endless wars. This is kind of an example of it. Um, you know, the U.S. and NATO have, have had a presence in this area since that bombing campaign. In 2008, Kosovo formally declared independence from Serbia with the support from the U.S. and its allies. Um, and there's currently about 3,700 NATO troops deployed under K4, including over 600 U.S. troops. Um, so it is an area, you know, that it's a it's it's a tense uh, piece between Kosovo and Serbia. Um, there is there is, I guess, always kind of a chance of uh, something breaking out here. But it's something just even this just the fact that I think a, a lot of Americans don't realize that we've had this little occupation force since that bombing campaign and that Kosovo you know, was carved out of Serbia uh by the U.S. and NATO. And, you know, you think about all the criticism that they give Russia. And they also act like the war in Ukraine is the first war in Europe since the end of World War II. But here over in the Balkans, they seem to just ignore that. Um, But anyway, I don't want to take too long here. Uh, The next one here is Iran. Iran says that it responded to an EU proposal aimed at reviving the nuclear deal. So Iran's leading nuclear negotiator said on Sunday that they responded to this proposal that was put forward by Joseph Burrell. He's the EU's foreign policy chief. He's their top diplomat. And he proposed this last week. We don't really know the details of what he proposed, but he just said that he put forward a new draft text of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, He said, quote, I have now put on the table a text that addresses in precise detail the sanctions lifting, as well as the nuclear steps needed to restore the JCPOA, end quote. So Iran said that they responded. We don't know exactly what their response is. Um, And the State Department has said that the U.S. is reviewing Burrell's proposal. And the U.S. has yet to respond. But there is another sign today that the U.S. is not ready to revive the deal. Uh, According to a report in the Wall Street Journal, the Biden administration is considering new sanctions on on Iran that would target Iranian oil sales. Uh, They would sanction a UAE-based businessman 
and a network of companies suspected of helping export Iran's oil. Um, so it's just a sign, another sign that the U.S. isn't serious about reviving the deal. And last week, we saw Brett McGurk, who is Biden's top Middle East official on the National Security Council, say it was highly unlikely that the deal would be revived. Um, so that's it for our stuff for today. Um, we have something up here from Electronic Intifada about Ben and & Jerry's and Unilever. Um, I'm just going to try to explain this as quick as I can. Uh, so last year, we saw Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream company, say that they're going to stop selling their ice cream in illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And the Israeli government uh, launched what they called a maximum pressure campaign to get this decision reversed. And how they did that was they leaned on U.S. governors uh, of states in, in the U.S. There's over 30 U.S. states. It's one of the most brazen First Amendment violations that we see today. Um, there's over 30 U.S. states that have laws on the books against boycotting Israel. So how they do this, it's against the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, which calls for global boycotts to pressure Israel. Um, so how these laws work, say you're a contractor and you're entering a contract with the state, you have to, up to a certain point, um, if you're making a certain amount of money, you have to basically sign what is a loyalty oath to Israel. You have to say that you're not now or ever planning on boycotting Israel. Um, but how they get the big companies is that their pension funds, state pension funds, have to divest from companies that boycott Israel. Now, Unilever is Ben & Jerry's parent company. It's a British conglomerate that bought Ben & Jerry's, I think, in 2001 or somewhere around there. So they targeted Unilever. Several states took action. I know New York, Florida, I want to say Texas, and a few others took the step to divest from Unilever. And Unilever suddenly announced that they sold Ben & Jerry's business interests in Israel to an Israeli company. Um, so they could keep selling the ice cream in the settlements. And Ben and Jerry's turned around and sued Unilever over because of that. Um, it, I hope you guys followed me there. <laughs> it's a little confusing. I'm trying to just explain it quick. But um, so right now, so this is from Electronic Intifada. They're basically saying that Unilever admitted that the pressure that Israel put on them and put on the U.S. states uh, is what made them go ahead and sell the business interests in Israel and Ben and Jerry's had a deal when they were sold to Unilever because they are a progressive company. They're politically active that their board would have still have its independence in this sense. And that Unilever wouldn't be able to kind of intervene like this. So they're suing Unilever um, to get it reversed. And just one thing that's one more thing about it is that, you know, these laws are supposed to target companies that boycott Israel but that's not even what Ben and Jerry's was doing. They just said they were going to stop selling ice cream in settlements. That's it. They were going to keep selling their ice cream in Israel. So it goes to show even just that, how, how, how much they, um, you know, kind of freak out about it and unleash this, these laws, um, that are just very, uh, so against the first amendment. So I actually followed this pretty closely. I've written a lot about it. Um, but yeah, if people want to check that out, um, and then the last thing here, this is interesting. It's something that uh, if I get a chance, I'm going to look into more. The FBI raided uh, a 
socialist group in St. Louis, uh, the African People's Socialist Party. Um, and they, they, the members of this party said that the FBI performed a violent raid with flash grenades and drones around 5 a.m. in the morning. And this is over allegations that they're tied to Russia, that uh, because one of their, the chairman, I believe, said he attended a conference in Russia in 2014. It was some anti-globalization um, conference that he went to, and it was because of that. It looks like we don't really know for sure that they have uh, that they did this raid in St. Louis, and then they also did a raid in Florida um, against uh, a group that was affiliated with this socialist group. Um, so, if people want to check that out, it's on the top of the page. I'm going to try to kind of get into it more. Uh, maybe write something up about it this week, but it's alarming because, you know, it's almost like this was almost just a matter of time before we started seeing stuff like this because of uh, how Russia now really is like the enemy, even though we're not technically in a direct war, that's how the U.S. government is treating it. And this group, just because they went to Russia and they are outspoken in they're against the U.S. and NATO intervention in Ukraine, you know, that's enough for them to get raided by the FBI. So that's just alarming to see, and it's something uh, I'm going to try to keep tabs on. Uh, but anyway, that's it. I didn't want to go too long. Uh, we still we have a lot of good viewpoints today. We have one from Ray McGovern, um, who thinks an easy way out of this situation with Pelosi and Taiwan would, for, would be for Biden to, as commander-in-chief, order the aircraft carrier strike group that's sailing around in the area now in the South China Sea. He thinks that could serve to defuse tensions. Um, well, that's it for today. I hope you guys are enjoying the show. You can contact me at news at antiwar.com or you can find me at, on Twitter and DM me. A lot of people do that. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. And if you want to support the show, go to antiwar.com slash donate. And I will see everybody tomorrow.